Welcome to Confronting the Madness, a podcast exploring the psychological issues of our time. My guest today is Ronan Levy. Ronan is an entrepreneur and co-founder and executive chairman of Field Trip Psychedelics, Inc. Prior to his current roles, Ronan co-founded Canadian Cannabis Clinics and Canvas Rx, Inc., the latter of which was acquired by Aurora Cannabis, Inc. in 2016 after which Ronan served as Senior Vice President, Business and Corporate Affairs for Aurora. Ronan started his career as a lawyer practicing corporate and securities law at Blake, Castles, and Graydon. In this episode, Ronan and I spoke about his ability to navigate the entrepreneurial gray zone, why you should trade your cow for a handful of magic beans, and also the societal importance of being a stern foe of all sham. Oh, and we also found time to discuss field trip and the future of healthcare. Lastly, since transitioning my intro music, my downloads are up 127%. So without much further ado, let's hit it. Levy, um, executive chairman of Field Trip Health. Welcome to Confronting the Madness. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, and so, you know what I thought was really actually quite fun when I was emailing with with your team, and I asked for a, both a a photo and a bio. Um, one of your team members came back with two different bios, and I don't know, maybe this is something they do in Toronto or in, in the psychedelic space, but. It was the spicy version and the non-spicy version. And so I read that to mean, okay, if you're going into institutional investors, maybe you'll you'll give them the non-spicy, but maybe um, for shows like this, we'll we'll do this, we'll do the spicy version if that's okay. By all means, uh, yeah. the spicy version is perfect for this. And, and and I'm I'm really interested psychologically um, in actually the first sentence of it so we're gonna we're gonna actually break down your your spicy version a little bit too if okay. that's okay sure so here here's here's how ronan's spicy bio starts starts by saying believing that you should never hesitate to trade your cow for a handful of magic beans ronan has built a career out of doing things that others say cannot be done now can i just pause there um and it goes on to say that you started your career as a lawyer, which presumably is the cow, and you traded the that cow into what is uh, cannabis magic beans and now psychedelic magic beans. And my question around that is, why? Why did I trade my cow for, for some cannabis and psychedelic and, magic and, beans? And, and also fundamentally, why do you believe that one should never hesitate to trade their cow? 
Uh, that's a fair question. So first of all, I should pay homage to, I didn't write those words. Those are a quotation from, uh, it's, it's a quotation from the author, Tom Robbins, uh, but one that's always held a, a lot of uh, engagement over my psyche. Um, so why do I think people should never hesitate to trade their cow for a handful of magic beans? It really comes down to a lesson I learned um you know, 10 or 15 years ago, uh, when it became aware to me that, sorry, I'm getting feedback through my phone into the microphone. So I'm just going to move the phone out of the way. Um, it became aware to me that people are very bad at making important decisions a lot of the time because, and, and this isn't just my read of it, although I have pretty firsthand experience of seeing it happened, you know, humans vastly overestimate downside risk and generally underestimate upside risk. So we make decisions from a defensive position, particularly decisions that pertain to, you know, careers and and relationships. The thing is that people forget in I'm perfectly guilty of this as well. So this is not judgment on anybody else. It's really just trying to help people take a different perspective on life and and making decisions in life is that, you know, using the example as a job of a job of, should I take this other job or I hate my job? Should I, I quit? People go to the analysis of what happens if I never get a job again, then I'm going to burn through my savings and I'm going to come homeless and life is going to be terrible. Right. And that's the analysis that people do. And it's like, okay, well, that's the worst case scenario. Um, And then they try and do a risk assessment of like how likely that risk worst case scenario is. But what often people fail to do is to remember that a step in one direction, i.e. quitting your job, is literally just one step in one direction. And so you start down a path this way. If it doesn't work out, if if you don't like it, there is absolutely nothing that stops you from going a little bit this way or this way or this way or that way or that way. And it's all incremental, but we don't often think in increments. We think in terms of worst case and best case scenarios. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the other lessons I've learned in my life in in working with Erwin um, Perlman, who's been my coach, therapist, guru, I, I don't even know exactly what word you'd use to describe him, is that you know, there's often the expression of hope for the best and prepare for the worst emotionally. Um, Mm -hmm. And he's like, there's no point in doing that because if you're hoping for something, um, you're going to be just as disappointed if it doesn't happen, whether you try and gird yourself for disappointment or not. So why don't you put all of your energy into trying to make the best thing happen, the dream come true happen. Mm -hmm. And in my life, when I've shot big and really gone for those things that seem completely outlandish, that's always where I found the most magic to happen. That's where I found things succeed and work out exactly where you want to. You know, it's kind of like the think and grow rich, which is if you put your mind to it, that's when things happen. Um, so instead of hedging your bets all the time, go all in to whatever you want to do and never forget that you can always change. Um, and, and so taking that back up to a very digestible, um, quirky, uh, easy to repeat quote, 
never ha- hesitate to ch- trade your cow for magic. A handful of magic beans is a good reminder of, of that kind of principle. Um, and for me, why did I uh, has it trade my legal cow uh, for for some magic beans? It's because I hated being a lawyer. I genuinely <laughs> despised my life. It was contrary to so much of who I am, which is deep down, I'm a shit disturber, right? I right. I like to challenge the status quo. I like to make people ask questions because so much of our lives is inertia. We do it because either we've been told to do it or we've mm-hmm. been doing it for a while now and it feels weird and uncomfortable to change. Right. Uh, and I've just always hated that. You know, I, I can go back um, to when I was in grade I think I was in grade two or grade three. Uh, we used to get the Globe and Mail, a Canadian newspaper. Yeah. Um, and back in the day, at the bottom right-hand corner of uh, the front page, there was something, I don't remember exactly what it was called, but it was kind of like a joke of a day or a thought of the day kind of mm-hmm. um, section. And there was once a quote from Mark Twain. And it, it, the quote was ascribed to Mark, Mark Twain. And it said, comma, where they normally insert a person's title or, or their profession. And instead of saying Mark Twain author, they wrote Mark Twain, comma, stern foe of all sham. And I had <laughs> no friggin' idea what that meant at the time. And it took me many, many years to appreciate exactly what it meant. But somehow it totally enraptured me. I was just like, uh, there's something powerful in this message that I need to keep around with me. So I cut it out and I stuck it in my wallet and it's long since disappeared, but it's always been th- something I've I've personally aspired to, which is let's call out the sham. Let's recognize that so much of life, A, that we don't actually see so much of life. So to think that everything is so rigid or black and white is Mm -hmm. just fallacious. Um, But B, that so much of what we do, you know, it's if you just ask the question of like, why the hell am I doing this in the first place? Uh, You may find that the answer is too often just because. And I just don't think that. Path dependency more often than not of just doing what you've always done and therefore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sorry, can you say that, Mark Twain? Uh... Stern foe of all sham. <laughs> okay, I got to remember that too. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think th- that was a very articulate and um, interesting uh, synopsis of of you breaking down the first sentence of your spicy bio. So, th- okay. so thank you for that. I'm just. I want to. I just want to rip through. Um, for those um, just to get to know Ronan a, a little bit better in his career history. So you were a, a securities lawyer with Blake Castles and Graydon um, and then left when you realized that, you know, your creative mind was shackled by the institutional, you know, time counting of law where every three minutes is a dollar or whatever. Anyways. <laughs> and- uh, that's, that's cheap relative to what Blake's actually charges, but yes. <laughs> Um, since you left law, um, you helped launch the business across a number of industries or businesses, including gold, cannabis, and now most recently in the psychedelic sector, where you are the co-founder and the executive chairman of Field Trip Health Limited, Limited, a global leader in the development and delivery of psychedelic therapies. Um, now, 
not that I wanted to spend the entire hour dissecting your spicy bio, but I did <laughs> want to ask you another question within this. Um, so y- you and a number of colleagues who were in the cannabis space transitioned into the psychedelic sector together, uh, you and Joseph. Um, and uh, here's a question for you, because I started a business when I was 19. It was called CGFL Soccer Camps and Events Incorporated. And there was three of us, and we had to decide who was going to be the president, the vice president, and the CFO. That's what our lawyer told us to do. And so we played paper, yeah. rock, scissors, and I got to be the vice president. Um, the shittiest guy of us all was the president. And then the worst person with money was the CFO. <laughs> anyway, my question to you is this. How are you the executive chairman? How is Joseph the CEO? Like, I, I guess my question is, how do you divide and conquer responsibilities at the executive level within field trip? Like, what do you specialize in? What are you really good at? Um, maybe just walk through that. Sure. Before we do that, though, I'd just like to point out a, a good rule in life, which is if it pertains to anything other than good legal advice, don't listen to a lawyer for how you should do things. Just a general rule of thumb. Um, he did not advise paper, rock, scissors as the way to find, <laughs> but that's, you know. I, I think that may have been just as appropriate as any other approach. Um, so how did I end up as executive chairman, um, Joseph as CEO and Hanan, who is actually our, our third business partner in the last business and third in this one, but also uh, not third, but the third on the list that we're talking about right now, as well as the two others, Mujib and Ryan. Uh, we really act as kind of a, a, a three to five person, depending on which business we're talking about, partnership. Um the responsibilities are more notional than actual, uh, and we've divided up the responsibilities according to our actual skill sets. So my title as executive chairman uh, came as a result of a couple of things, but having a legal background uh, just equips me for corporate governance kind of conversations as much as I hate that kind of stuff. I also tend to be the the ambassador and the evangelist for the company, as well as the person who does podcasts like this. Um, and in a, in a previous business uh, that we were involved with, uh, where we had operating positions for a while, we actually had a, an opportunity to be on uh, 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 was it Tim Kramer? No, it wasn't Shark Tank. Oh, yeah. Jim Kramer. Uh, Jim Kramer, thank you. Uh, on 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 his show. Um, bye and, bye bye field trip bye. Yeah this this was a cannabis company and um, oh, this was before field trip. This was before field trip and um, Joseph was technically the CEO of that company and I think my title was chief strategic officer and they wouldn't accept me to go on the show because they only take CEOs or above. Right, um, so and and Joseph was traveling, and because I'm just you know more experienced doing media related work, uh, I was going to be the one to go, but they wouldn't do that for us. So we said, let's not let's learn from past mistakes and not let uh, titles that we really just notionally allocate uh, because we really operate as as partners um, stop us from opportunities. And, and so I ended up with the the title of executive chairman uh, as a result of those kind of intersections I, of. I yeah, events. And, and sorry, for the record, is there a YouTube clip of you on Jim Cramer with 
There is not no. because they wouldn't accept us because I wasn't. And, and, and Joseph at the time, who obviously uh, is more than competent to go, notwithstanding, uh, I tend to do this kind of stuff, was actually in Greece. Um, and he, okay. you know, it just didn't line up. So we missed the opportunity. Well, I don't know if being on Jim Cramer is an opportunity or not, but uh, I digress on that. <laughs> probably, probably a lot of eyeballs for, for uh, so, so can I, I just want to take a step back um, in terms of, and and I know you've been on a lot of a lot of podcasts, and I've listened to a lot of them. Um, and you know, a lot of guests will our, our interviewers will ask, you know, break down what exactly psilocybin is, et cetera, et cetera. I, I'm really much more interested um, in both your journey navigating kind of the, the gray zone of business um, and how you felt so comfortable there, and maybe if we could talk through both. Um, your cannabis experience and then transition into the psychedelics experience and just walk me through what, what that's like, because, you know, I, I hear um, words like pioneer, not pioneer so much, but pioneer change agent, all these superlatives for these, you know, business leaders. And sometimes I look at them and I'm like, how the hell are you calling yourself a, ch you're calling yourself a change agent. It's just like you're, your quote about empathy. If you start saying you're, you're empathetic, um, yeah, that's probably a problem. But for yeah. you, I mean, to have entered in the cannabis space um, and then successfully exited, and then now you're in the psychedelic space, um, is, this, is, is this always just been normal for you? I know you said you wanted to leave law because you know, you're a shit disturber or you wanted to kind of be on the bleeding edge of the world, but maybe talk through when you first decided, okay, yeah, I'm not going to be a lawyer anymore. And I want to get in the cannabis space. Um, how you, how you logically thought through that process and then maybe just quickly how you, you, okay, you make a business plan, but then how do you go and take your business plan and convince people that, you know, you amongst the thousands of marijuana gold diggers gold rushers are the ones to invest in or to to partner with uh sure there are a couple of parts to that question so i'll, I'll try to sorry um, i do that, touched it. that that's well. that's okay i just want to make sure i speak to each of the key themes in your questions so how did i go from being a lawyer to um cannabis and, and psychedelics um so I, I left Blake's, I went in-house at a pharma company. Um, I then managed to land myself a job working with Much Music and MTV Canada as a lawyer, uh, which was awesome in some ways because I got to live out a childhood dream of pretending to be a rock star. Uh, you know, I always played guitar and I was in a band in high school. We were terrible and I'm not a very good musician because I don't really have good rhythm. Uh, or much of George Strompolopoulos fired, did you? <laughs> no, I did not get George Strompolopoulos fired. Uh, and then even though the job at Much Music and MTV Canada was fantastic in terms of its uh, perks and, and being in a, a really fun and exciting industry that was going through a massive transition, the work itself I was doing was well below uh, what I thought I should be doing. It just wasn't engaging or stimulating or challenging and spending eight hours a day doing that is just not something I wanted to do. So. Uh, a cousin of mine was the CFO of a company uh, doing online 
uh, dating kind of stuff. Uh, and some of its assets included uh, uh, sites that were doing some things that were questionable. Um, and a, he went through law school. Uh, he had a very incredible mind for law, even though he was never a qualified lawyer. But more importantly, he had an incredible awareness around separating what's legal from what is possible um, mm -hmm. and recognizing that just because the law says one thing, it doesn't mean that you can't do it because there's a line across which you can't go in which you will be punished. But if the letter of the law is here, the line of punishment is here and wading into this gray zone right. creates a lot of opportunity. Um, mm -hmm. And at first, it made me entirely uncomfortable, but you just had to watch him do his thing over and over and over and, and really play the system quite well to recognize that he was in almost all respects correct. And um, it just helped me see the world from a, a different light uh, that there was opportunity where people fear to tread. And so... That company was doing a lot of things, even though he was pushing the limits in, in some ways that I felt comfortable with because the, it may have been offside the law, but it did, didn't mean it was necessarily wrong in, right. in like a very principled way. Uh, in other ways, what they were doing was very wrong and offside right. the law. So right. I only lasted for a few months at the company and um, ultimately left. And then uh, I, I left to try to do a startup with a couple of friends who... who um, had a software development shop. And so I was going to be the business side. They would use their software development shop to do the tech side. Uh, quickly learned that if you're paying people with equity when they can earn money with dollars at the same time, your project mm -hmm. is always going to go to the bottom. Um, so that didn't pan out. And then an opportunity uh, through a friend of mine emerged to open a, a business in cash for gold. And my initial reaction was like, Ugh, cash for gold, who would want to get into that industry? And and for anybody in Southern Ontario who may be listening, you've probably seen the ads for Harold the Jewelry Buyer or right. um, Oliver Cashman, uh, Russell Oliver Cashman Jewelry. Uh, and it was so unappealing. Um, mm -hmm. But then as I thought about it more, I was like, there's opportunity here because there are those clowns and then mm -hmm. there's nobody else. And so right. if you could come in and be a human, reasonable, thoughtful participant in this industry, when your competitors are clowns, um, there's great opportunity. And, and so uh, we opened Toronto Gold, uh, which now has three locations across Southern Ontario and still operates. But I quickly realized that I didn't want to be a cash for gold buyer. That was not my right. life aspiration, but it was a great opportunity and I needed an opportunity at the time. So again, it's one of those things I've never hesitated to trade your cow for a handful of magic beans. It's like I, I didn't have much of a cow to trade, but I, I right. took a long shot on it. Um, subsequently, stepped back from active operations of the stores and started doing freelance legal work. Um, and through that process, ended up meeting Joseph and Hanan, uh, who were trying to do a startup initially in the home services space, because I had been doing a lot of work with a lot of different startups and had a fairly keen sense of what would be successful and what would not be successful as a, as a startup, at least in terms of thinking through potential opportunities. Um, even though I was brought in as a lawyer, I helped them with a lot of business analysis, consideration, and ideation. And so 
they launched one project, uh, subsequently shut it down because they realized it, it was not a good business model. Uh, and they were looking for the next thing to do. Joe had, had sold a previous business and, um, had committed a year to just trying to create a new, new business. Um, right. and so it wasn't like just because this one failed, he was going to pack up his bags and go home. Um, he was going to find something else to do. Uh, and so they did. And so they had a list of a whole bunch of new ideas on a whiteboard and I had a meeting with them. And I think this was in December of 2013. And we went through them one by one. And apparently I said, all of these ideas are shit. I don't remember being so brusque, but uh, apparently I said, all of these ideas are shit. And then I was putting it on my coat to leave. And Joe's like, well, there's one other idea, but it doesn't feel like it, it. It's just not, we're not comfortable with it. I'm like, what is it? And they're like, well, the laws around medical cannabis in Canada are changing and there's an opportunity to build an online marketplace for medical cannabis uh, to connect producers with patients. And I was like, why aren't you guys doing this? Like how often do you get an opportunity where a multi-billion dollar industry goes from black market to legal almost overnight? Um, it seems like such a great opportunity. And they're like, ah, oh, it seems so shady, you know, cannabis, who wants right. to be in that industry? And I'm like, hold on guys. Like I just left this online dating company. I'm a cash <laughs> or gold buyer. Legal cannabis is probably the most legitimate and above board thing I'm going to be doing for a long time. And so if you guys aren't going to do this, I'm going to do this. And so after cajoling them for a little while, uh, we kind of joined forces and out of that canvas RX was born and Canadian cannabis clinics was born. And, um, you know, it turned out to be initially it wasn't a massive success. We launched Canvas RX. None of us are digital marketers. None of us are growth hackers. Uh, we got out there. We launched the website. We got a little bit of press, and no one came. And uh, we're like, "Oh, this this is problematic." But we had confidence in in the space and that there would be some sort of demand and need. And we actually launched officially at a medical conference targeting doctors. And it just so happened that one of the um, doctors we spoke to, most of them avoided us quite literally like the plague, but every once in a while, a thoughtful, open-minded doctor would come and talk to us. Uh, at that meeting, we met Dr. Barry Waysglass, who was a reformed hippie, um, a longtime medical doctor, very thoughtful, very prudent. And he was uh, really interested in, in medical cannabis. You know, he was an early adopter of uh, acupuncture and all sorts of alternative healing modalities mm-hmm. uh, back in the 80s. And, and so cannabis was kind of the next uh, avant-garde thing for him. And so it was great to meet Barry. Uh, we realized we weren't getting a lot of traffic, uh, but we became aware of, of a constant theme from the few doctors that did stop to speak to us, which was I have patients who are asking me about medical cannabis. I will not touch it. But if you have a doctor, I could refer these patients to uh, mm. to prescribe medical cannabis. That would be great. And mm. hearing that a few times, realized that was actually the reason we weren't getting people to our website. It's not because we weren't digital marketers, which we aren't. And that still mm. probably would have been a bit of a challenge for us. Uh, yeah. But it's because no one could get a prescription. No one could get access to medical cannabis. So we realized that the, the pinch point was actually doctors willing to prescribe. And so we went back to Barry and said like, hey, we're interested in opening a clinic. Would you consider opening a clinic with us after some back and forth? He agreed. We opened our first clinic in St. Catharines and the the phones rang off the hook. And we're wow. like, okay, this is the real problem. This is the real need. Um, and and it, so you, it just scaled from there. So you thought um, at the time, um, 
you would go see your primary care physician. He would write the prescription and then you would get your legal medical cannabis. That was not working because they were afraid to do so. They needed an intermediary. And that was the, that was the breakthrough for you guys to have the actual doctor to refer to a doctor who was comfortable with prescribing the marijuana. Is that accurate to say? That's exactly right. Uh, and what we realized is that it solved the problem for two groups. It solved the problem for patients who wanted access and couldn't get it because their doctor wasn't going to prescribe. And it solved the problem for physicians, family physicians, because uh, they don't like to say no to patients. You know, we're, right. we're in yeah. a world yeah. where people doctor shop. Um, and so it, it solved both both groups problems. Uh, and, and it just took off from there. And so we opened our first clinic in September, incredibly busy from day one. We opened our second one. It took a long time to find a second doctor to work for us. It took almost eight months. Uh, but in April we opened our second, uh, so April, 2015 at this point. Um, and by 2017, we're at close to 30 locations. Um, so it scaled really quickly. Wow. We sold that to Aurora cannabis and, um, that helped Aurora grow from a small company and uh, yeah. left in 2018 um, to do something new. And we had no idea what the next thing was. Mm -hmm. It just so happened, again, one of those, uh, I mean, I can look back at that cannabis industry uh, and again, going back to uh, the importance of trying to create magic and, and take some bets. It's like, I can point to the yeah. exact moments when success became possible. You know, the mm -hmm. sliding door moments without which it never would have happened. But, you know, when we met Barry, if my back hadn't been turned and Joseph was facing him, it could have been a very different conversation. Right, um, right. But it was Joseph who is a magic doctor whisperer and seems to be <laughs> able to like engender trust. And, you know, and then there's like a conversation that led to us meeting the banker that ended up help, helping us sell it to Aurora that helped, in, helped Aurora raise the capital. And, and so it's kind of like, you have to have a little bit of faith that things are going to work out and put your energy into that. Um, because, Certainly we were good, but we we're just as lucky as we were good. And and without one or the other, yeah. it wouldn't have happened. But, um, but would you say though, that with that business, um, as you alluded to earlier, like were you all in mentally with respect to making this as successful as possible? Like you weren't hedging with doing work on the side or like, were you mentally all in on trying to make the cannabis run yeah. successfully. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, at one point, uh, I was engaged and, uh, we were getting ready for the wedding in Curacao and we realized that we didn't have enough cash. <laughs> uh, so I went back to practicing law part-time, uh, evenings and weekends to, you know, cr create a little bit extra money to, to get there. Um, but we actually had the quintessential entrepreneurial moment, which was we had an LOI sign to sell to Aurora. Uh, Aurora yeah. was out of cash and, and we were out of cash yeah. and uh, a financing was contingent on the closing of the acquisition. And we had a staff of well over a hundred people uh, and we needed to make payroll and we didn't have the cash for it. So Joseph and I both went to the bank and took out whatever cash we could and put it into the company to make payroll on the hope that we would make it to uh, closing or closing of the transaction. Um, up until that point in my life, I had never felt anxious about money, but for a good few nights that week, I, I was yeah. up late because I, at the end of the day, I mean, everything would have been fine. I have family, I have friends, we would yeah. have figured it out, but there's a real possibility that I would have no money and no business and no job at the end of it. And, and that was anxiety inducing, no doubt, wow. but it did work out. Um, so, okay. 2013 was when you first entered into the cannabis space and then you exited at uh, did you say 2018? Is that accurate? 
Yeah, so we sold the business in 2016 to Aurora, 2016, uh, yeah. but Aurora was, you know, a very, very lean shop at that point. Yeah. And they didn't have a lot of sophistication in terms of management, so we took very active positions in helping Aurora grow as well as the clinics business. And then okay. in 2018, we left Aurora. Yeah. Okay, so um, having enjoyed the gray area of the cannabis space, even though at that time. You know, it was probably it was becoming more and more mainstream, you know, and becoming legalized. But, you know, when you started, it was probably still pretty, pretty nascent. Was that after you exited so invigorating or exhilarating that you knew you wanted to foray next into another frontier? Or like, did you go back to the whiteboard and say, okay? We got these psychedelics. We got these NFTs. Um, I'm going to build a rocket ship like Elon Musk. I'm going to, or, or how did you then process? Um, yeah, I think psychedelic medicine in 2019, which, okay, is starting to gain traction, is something that you guys really were interested in. Again, sliding doors moment. Um, one of the first meetings that Joseph had after we we went out and we entered a new office space uh, for Grassfed Ventures, which was going to be our vehicle for incubating the next business. And one of the first meetings that Joseph had was uh, with a woman named Judy Bloomstock, who's the CEO of Diamond Therapeutics, which is doing clinical development of psilocybin. Uh, and this was 2018, probably about June, 2018. Um, and, and Joe came out of the meeting and I ran into him in the hallway and I'm like, Oh, who was that? And he's like, Oh, um, someone, woman doing something in psilocybin, uh, or psychedelics. And I'm like, wait, psychedelics are a thing. And he's like, yeah, I think so. And I had that same kind of immediate, like, Oh my God, this is, we got to do this as I had back with cannabis four years or five years earlier. Right. Um, I'm like, can we set up another meeting? I want to learn more. And so we did. And, and Judy alerted us to at the time maps had just been granted breakthrough therapy designation for their MDMA assisted therapy yeah. trial. I remember having heard that Peter Thiel had invested in a psilocybin company, but never paid much mind to it because I didn't think it was a mm -hmm. thing at that point. Um, Michael Pollan had just published How to Change Your Mind. And I just got this deep sense that this is happening and this is happening way faster than anyone expected. You know, most people mm -hmm. would say like, when will psychedelics become a thing? And, you know, maybe some progressive folks would be like, ah, it's 10 or 15 years away. And right. my instinct said, no, this, this is, this is a couple of years away. Uh, it's going to happen fast and it's going to happen hard and in a good way. Um, Sorry. What, what was the, what in your instincts at that time made you think this is going to be so significant? Because for me, I mean, uh, so I was the CEO of the Alberta mental health foundation 2019. And so pretty, you know, involved with novel treatments. And, 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 but I don't, I don't think to my mind at the time, and maybe it's different in the entrepreneurial space that it was being talked about to a great degree. So why, why, why did you say, yep, yeah, this is going to not only be a, a, a magic bean that I want to take, but also it's going to, it's going to skyrocket. And maybe you didn't think that, but what was, what was it about it that, it was a couple of things. A, it was just an intuition on some levels that I just had the sense that something was happening. And and I could tell something was happening because in addition to Michael Pollan, um, Judy pointed out that there were now these websites in Canada 
openly selling mushrooms online, right. not dark yeah. web or anything along those lines. I was like, oh my God, like this has hit a level of traction that people feel comfortable wading into this. This is like the gray right. market cannabis dispensaries uh, of 2012, 2013, mm -hmm. um, which I accurately predicted would start blowing up across Canada as soon as um, uh, 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 Rona Ambrose stood up in parliament and told the city of Vancouver to shut down the dispensaries. And as soon as Vancouver ignored that, I'm like, Jesus Christ, they're going to be all over the country in three weeks. And, and honestly, wow. within a couple of months, there was more dispensaries in Toronto than there were in there than there were Tim Hortons. Um, so every once in a while, you really? just kind of have that flash of insight. And, and it was the mm -hmm. same kind of feeling around that. But then it, it, it wasn't entirely uninformed intuition. You know, you just had to look right. at the clinical trials showing the yeah. profound efficacy improvements of psychedelics relative to antidepressants. You looked, you saw cannabis going super mainstream. You saw mental health and self-awareness and self-discovery with apps like Calm and Headspace hitting billion dollar valuations. You see Michael Pollan writing a book about doing a whole bunch of psychedelics. Um, and, and you see this backlash against conventional medicine and, and pharmaceuticals largely triggered by the opioid crisis. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's all like all of these things stacked up to be like, this is the next thing. People are looking for mental health treatments. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, the experience is generally positive. It's, it's really great. Um, people are leaning into this. Cannabis has changed minds. Uh, people are going to go. People are going to be really intrigued by this. Mm -hmm. And again, it was mostly intuition, uh, but it, it really started to bear out quite quickly. And then just by happenstance, like Denver decided to decriminalize psychedelics. And, and that right. was really an acceleration point. Um, and, and so I, I don't want to dive too much into the science because I'm sure folks can get that lots of other places. But I just want to say um, the prevailing hy hypothesis about um, what psychedelics can do for your own mental health and well-being and I'm just going to read this quote. I think it was actually from your white paper that you did uh, from Field Trip's white paper. But um, the prevailing hypothesis put forth by leading researchers in the field states that ketamine, which is what Field Trip's currently offering, and other psychedelics induce a neuroplastic state that can then be used to facilitate insight in the formation of new patterns of thought and behavior in patients suffering from depression. Um, and it goes on to say a skilled psychotherapist can help the patient in this creative endeavor, ensuring that the newly induced neuroplasticity and insights gained from their psychedelic experience are sustained and integrated into their lives, ideally prolonging and preventing relapse. Um, I, I just, even that those kind of short statements and when you talk about neuroplasticity or whatever's happening in the brain, um, I'm, I'm a, I'm a huge advocate towards us really cementing the research around proving that, that statement out without question. And, you know, the recent, um, research that's been done by Robin Card Harris was what I was extremely interested in because it was measuring the head to head efficacy of, uh, uh an SSRI antidepressant escitalopram against, psilocybin they had 59 uh, patients in the study um and it's been interesting for me to watch the um media takes on it the um you know armchair medical professionals takes on it, researchers and i'm just curious your perspective on you know what that study means 
or how, how you interpreted the data, first of all, and then what do you think that study means for the future of um, psychedelic medicine becoming part of our, our toolkit for treatment modalities? Like how, how we're going to build on that? Yeah, so uh, I'm not a scientist, so I'm I'm relying on the assessments made by the scientists that we that we work with, and and the general feedback was it's very positive. Probably not as positive as uh, people in the psychedelics industry might have expected, but it net net it's positive because it shows that psychedelics in in, in at least psilocybin in no uncertain terms are as good as conventional antidepressants. And there are a number of reasons to believe they, they might be better. Um, the, the statistical endpoints did not satisfy the requirements of, uh, they could be better, but it was probably more a function of study design than actual outcomes. Um, uh, so I, I think it's a good foundation. And when you layer it on top of all the other research out there that shows the profound effects of, uh, of, of psychedelics and psilocybin, like the MAPS MDMA trial um, that showed uh, in phase two that close to 70% of people with chronic severe PTSD in the trial for an average of 17.4 years uh, no longer met the DSM requirements for having PTSD. When you see results like that, when you see the NYU trials that indicate that a single psilocybin-assisted therapy session um, can provide antidepressant effects for up to five years or more, you know this particular one, even though it wasn't a total 100% slam dunk, it was a foundational piece that was a, a, a head-to-head trial. Most of the other trials are not head-to-head, but it was a head-to-head yeah. trial that suggests positively that all the other trials that suggest that show really profound outcomes are are not without merit. That there right. is good yeah. foundational underpinnings for it. You know, you, you commented on the the research um, around it and it, there being no ambiguity ar- around that and it being rock solid. And it's one of those funny things that. In, in medicine, the placebo effect is something that is kind of scorned, being like, oh, perform no better than placebo. But right. I really think it merits a revisitation of what that means. The placebo effect says solely and exclusively by believing that you can get better, you do in fact get better. Like, right. let's appreciate how actually mind blowing that is. When you talk about, you know, never trade to, t- <laughs> never hesitate to trade your cow for a magic handful of magic beans. That level of belief is so critical. Like, there's a focus of science on being scientific and and rigor, and often in the process, real outcomes, day to day meaningful outcomes for people get lost. Uh, of like, is this better than placebo or not? The truth is. If people are getting better, like that really should be the outcome we're looking yeah, towards, yeah. not whether it really matters if this one is better or that one is better. Um, and and that's the kind of way I look at it, which is like even if psychedelics perform no better than placebo, uh, if people believe it performs a lot better than placebo and it's generally safe and they enjoy the experience and it's positive, wonderful. I don't know why, yeah. you know, yeah. I understand why we need to go further than that, but like let's just stop and appreciate that for for one moment and um and and so that's kind of my perspective of there's it's just like that tunnel vision of science or like that inertia of like this is the way it's been done but 
like being the stern foe for all sham being like, wait, let's ask that question of like, what are we actually trying to do with science? Are we trying to just have data for the sake of data? Or are we actually trying to help people get better? And if it's the latter, which I think it should be, then I think we just need to revisit how we think about these trials and, and what they mean and how we should think about that going forward. Yeah, no, placebo is the most powerful drug in the world. Um, and I guess on that note, you know, as, as we think about the future of psychedelic medicines or therapies as it is being fit within a medical model in many respects, you know, like right now, you know, you have to have two um, failed, you know, basically antidepressants before you're in, in able to go into, that might be the case for field trip right now with ketamine. Correct. Yep. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a D DSM categorization that was created by a group of psychiatrists. Um, and so I, I wonder how you think about the future of enabling individuals to access psychedelic therapies um, outside of, you know, the narrow view of the, med the medical model in the sense that, oh, no, you have to go in and check 10 things to say you have PTSD or not. Um, when psychedelics can play a significant role, obviously, in supporting those that have mental health disorders or distress, but they can also play a significant role in individuals who are in a good state of mind, but really want to expand their thinking on areas because all, all of us are imperfect individuals. And so how do you see the future beyond the medical model? And I'm not talking about recreationally, but some sort of hybrid between medical, recreational, and then there's going to be this middle ground where it's still under a controlled setting, but it's not trying to cure your DSM disorder. Do you see a lane for that? Because I don't hear that being talked about, you know, in great detail at this point in time. I think that's the in inevitable outcome. Uh, I'm not sure that at least in my lifetime, actually, maybe it's possible. I, I just think it more remote that we'll ever see true recreational head to the store, buy yourself some mushrooms and LSD and have a good time. Um, that, that seems a little bit outside of what I think social and societal and political comfort zones will be for a long time. Um, but almost certainly we're going to see the medical model and the wellness model, uh, which is what I'll call it, uh, merge. And um, there's two reasons I believe that, well, a number of reasons, but um, one is that and I've spoken to people who are leading some of the clinical trials and I've asked this specific question and their belief and their preference is that it become a wellness model. You know, most mm -hmm. people in the industry don't think that psychedelics should just be limited to medical applications. We're just yeah. playing by the artificial rules created by the FDA or health Canada. And yeah. that's the dance we're doing because that's the dance we have to do right now. But they believe that very quickly, um, you know, uh, that, uh, doctors will get quite comfortable prescribing psilocybin off-label um, for people who just need a lift, you know, and or something along those lines. Uh, and and it'll, it'll start to merge into what we see happening on a state-by-state -state basis, particularly in Oregon, which just passed Measure 109, which creates a market for psilocybin services where it's open to everyone over the age, I think, of 21, provided you don't have a contraindication. So, 
It's not medical. Anybody who doesn't have a condition specifically that would block them from it is welcome to participate in it. Uh, and I think that's the model that's going to continue to roll out because what we're going to see is that provided in a safe and controlled setting, psychedelics are by and large net positive for society. People will be happier, more resilient, miss less work, be more thoughtful, compassionate, open-minded. All of these wonderful things are going to come out of it and we're going to want more of that. Um, and so I think ultimately these two channels converge uh, and, and the real difference being insurance coverage and, and cost of access, which is yeah. in a medical model, insurance will be available in a wellness model significantly less available, but more broad access. And I think that's good. Now, I still think it leaves out a number of communities that are probably positioned to benefit the most from psychedelics, you know, marginalized communities, um, uh, communities that have been targeted with systemic racism or hate over the years. Um, they're still going to have challenges because it's still going to be expensive. And, and so that's one of the big questions in the psychedelic community. And the answer is, I don't have an answer for how we solve for that because anytime you involve a lot of time of, of medical or therapeutic professionals, it's going to be expensive. Um, so that, that's one of the kind of harder, harder nuts to crack. But my sense is even if it's a, an entirely top down trickle down effect as more and more people have their eyes opened by psychedelic therapies, which almost inevitably results in greater uh, amounts of empathy and compassion, more and more people will be thinking about how do we make this uh, more inclusive. And I think that creates a snowball effect that even if we don't have the solution right now, we will figure it out at, at some point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and just going back to field, field trip, and I did want to plug your, your podcast. Thank you. Um, field field tripping and i listen i've listened to a few episodes but um i want to say specifically episode 20 with dr michael verboda do no harm and michael is remind remind me what role he plays at field trip chief he's our uh, canadian medical director canadian medical director was just an absolutely unbelievable listen um you guys had natural chemistry with each other and i think michael you know I, I love seeing um younger psychiatrists um talk eloquently about health in a holistic fashion um because my experiences just through my employment have been with a lot of the um the the older gents you know who um who are lovely but um I think there's a um, generational turning here that's required um, as we move forward. So I, I would strongly encourage folks to listen to that because it was, it was insightful, inspiring um, in a way that wasn't too hokey or, you know, I think sometimes people get turned off if it's too far counterculturalish. ish. Um, yeah. And so anyways, kudos to you for, for that. And some of, um, the other work you've done on the podcast, I think has been really, really, um, worth my while to listen to. Um, I did want to ask you about, um, you're welcome. I think about some of the, the work you're doing at field trip right now that, um, is germane to today. I know you're doing some pre preclinical trial work on a specific compound, I believe. So maybe, maybe just chat through what that looks like and 
where you're doing it? Like, is it in Jamaica? Like, or, or how? Just how you have to navigate all the legal and logistical yeah. um, challenges associated with it being a scheduled drug right now. Talk through that a little bit, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, I should clarify some confusion that often comes up, uh, and we just got to get better at talking about this. What we're doing in Jamaica pertains specifically to psilocybin producing mushrooms uh, and cultivation, because in organs like, uh, sorry, in markets like Oregon, um, it'll be a cultivation model primarily and probably less so synthetic. So having come okay. from the cannabis industry and knowing the challenges of scaling cultivation, we just want to be ahead of the curve on that. The drug development work we're doing is uh, with a molecule uh, called FT-104. It's a novel psychedelic molecule that was developed by our chief science officer. And, and the impetus and rationale for it was that psilocybin in particular, not, not limited to, but psilocybin in particular, we think is a, is a game changer in the treatment of mental health conditions. Um, it, it's profoundly effective. The results are, are, are strong. People report, report very positive, pleasant experiences from it. And there's all of the pro social side effects that go along with it, like increased empathy, creativity, all of these wonderful things. The challenge with psilocybin is that a psilocybin trip or a psilocybin experience is four, six, maybe eight hours, depending on the person, which makes it very clinically difficult to administer. So we asked ourselves, can we find a way to have all the positive attributes of psilocybin in terms of the therapeutic outcomes, as well as the positive experience, subjective experience, but with a much shorter trip time? And so we canvassed all of the known scientific and anecdotal literature, and we realized that there are some molecules that fit those parameters roughly. And we zeroed in on one in particular that we've shown through our preclinical work actually binds in the brain almost identically to psilocybin, um, but washes out of your system in two to three hours as opposed to the four to six or more of psilocybin. Uh, and based on the anecdotal trip reports that we encountered online, it's a very psilocybin-like experience. So we've kind of got all the good things about psilocybin with addressing one of the major clinical applications of psilocybin, which is the time frame. The other nice thing about this particular molecule is as good as it is um, as a psychedelic based on those parameters, it's not very easy to turn it into medicine. It's not a very good drug product because the solubility means that um, PK levels and, and formulation becomes more challenging. Uh, so what uh, Nathan, our chief science officer did is he uh, adopted a pro-drug strategy and looked to see if we could add something to the underlying molecule that would enhance solubility so we can make it into a better drug product, um, thereby A, making a better drug product, but B, by developing a novel chemical entity from making these changes, we actually get robust IP protection around it. Right. Yeah. Um, and so that's what we did, and and that's exactly what we have. And so when FT one hundred four is administered, at least what we're seeing in the preclinical models, to a to a a rat in this case is the only thing we can say with certainty, but it makes sense that it parlays into humans as well. Is that the the chemical moiety that we've added to FT one hundred four gets cleaved naturally. So the original psychedelic, the original tryptamine that is in the person's body is exactly the one that all the trip anecdotal trip reports exist about. So we know exactly what the experience is going to be like. We know it's going to bind in a particular way. We know subjectively the experience is going to be very psilocybin-like, but now we've 
got it in two to three hours. And as a company, we've got robust IP. Um, and wow. so that's FT104. And we genuinely believe that this is the best molecule out there uh, because of the parameters we just defined, you know, and, yeah. and because it repopulates into the underlying tryptamine, it's de-risked in terms of we know if we know it's efficacious, we know it's psychedelic, we know it's psychoactive, uh, and we know it's reasonably safe. Um, and so, we two of the biggest risks in any drug development of does it work and is it safe have already been by and large answered. The rest is is to be satisfied uh, in terms of its efficacy. But again, based on what we're seeing on psilocybin and the similarities between psilocybin and FD104, we feel reasonably confident that we'll see similar efficacy levels. And so, uh, I genuinely believe it will be, um, you know, the preferred psychedelic medicine of choice in, in a legal medical application. Interesting. That's um, that's that's super exciting. If if all turns out well, I mean, as you say, the the cost the cost of the treatment is really a, a a prohibitive factor right now. And so if you can reduce the, the time both for the patient and for obviously the system. Yep. Um, oh, that, that's fascinating. So will there be any, um, will you, will you p publish data on that or is that something that you keep proprietary to your business um, as more information comes available? That's a good question. I, I don't actually know, um, you know, what has to be published and disclosed with the FDA process and or not. Um, but certainly, um, you know, we'll share what we think is is meaningful and non proprietary um, because we want people to be excited about it. And ultimately, it still involves hundreds of million, hundreds of millions of dollars to bring this to market. So we'll we'll need access yeah. to capital in the future and and all that kind of stuff. And how do you how do you think about collaboration amongst um, psychedelic companies now in terms of um, re research because you know like the Robert Card Harris study that came out that was like supposed to be the you know the best study ever you know it was like, it was like a million dollar study um, with 59 patients and you know for me being just a lay person I, I would say to myself well could not there be some sort of, and maybe there can't be because this is a business, but some sort of a consortium of our collaborative that say, hey, listen, we're going to pool our collective resources in order to do a, a giant phase three study um, in order to have a bigger population base, um, et cetera, et cetera. Is that something that is in conversation or is that just not something you would do because then you would not be allowed to have IP or there's privacy issues or how do you think about that i don't have a good answer to be quite honest you know drug development is not my area of expertise at this stage what we're focused on is getting through phase one um and and showing the basic safety requirements and then as we get into phase two we'll start exploring uh the the correct path forward from there uh but in in terms of collaborations with say academic institutions excuse me, by and large, they tend to focus on um, different therapeutic protocols or different development of, of novel molecules, not necessarily conduct of clinical trials, at least as far as I'm aware, um, for for FDA purposes. Um, but again, I, I like to break the mold. I like to not just do things the way they've been done because that's the way they've been done. So as we get closer to it and I become more educated and informed about exactly what has to happen, um, I'll certainly be keeping that in mind. 
Okay, I apologize for this stu- to making you answer a stupid question that just came to the top of my mind, but um, I think we'll both get over it. Okay, I got a couple. This is this is more on the uh, this is more on the enjoyable side of this conversation. Even though I think, judging by your your virtual body language, you've enjoyed this last fifty eight minutes. Yeah, it's been great. Um, <laughs> so what I've enjoyed. Um, reading um because you're quite active on um social media twitter linkedin um first of all I, I had a previous question how many interviews podcasts tv have you done since being part of field trip is this something that is like a constant inundation of your inbox uh i've done a lot uh but i'm happy to do it as well because there's, there's, I don't know, 60 years of stigma and attitudes to change. And so any opportunity I can to at least put a bug in the ear of someone to at a minimum revisit or question their perspective on things, I'll I'll take it. Um, you know, there's, there's nothing too big or too small. That's not worth doing in in my mind. Um, and so, yeah, I've, I've done a lot of these and, and I'm happy to keep doing them. Yeah, no, and, and, and kudos to you because, you know, even through, I mean, my podcast has been, you know, a bit broader than just psychedelics, um, more just exploring psychological issues of our time. But, you know, I had on um, one of your advisors, I can't believe my name's blanking, uh, Sanjay Signal was on yeah. the podcast. And, you know, he told a story that was both, it was just personal and it had to do with his family and it had to do with his daughter and it had to do with a dad trying everything he possibly could to ensure his daughter's health was um was improved and um i thought that was very kind and profound it had nothing really to do with psychedelics although that's where that led him in in the end um but I, I think the more people talk about it that aren't maybe the stereotypical person that our mom or dad might think of when they hear the word psychedelic, um, lawyers, um, people like myself who have an IQ of I can't even count that high. Um, no, no. <laughs> Just you know, people, people that are interested in solving some of the biggest societal problems today that doesn't have to do with, you know, the Timothy Leary um mantra of the 70s um i think the more that that can happen the more that it will dispel any notions that people have these preconceived in their mind so here's what i want to do with you and i'll let you i'll let you go um so you like to i don't know if these are prognostications if these are you know um predictions for the future but you make some some quite interesting ones and i'm going to read them and i want you to comment on them, if that's okay. 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 So here, here's prediction. Um, prediction one: In ten years, the role of the quote family doctor will be replaced by your psychedelic medicine provider because they will have. Oh God, I screwed this up. Because <laughs> they will be medical professionals, spend lots of time with you, and know you intimately. You will have a lot more trust in them. GPs better up their game. Yep. Care, care to comment? Sure. Um, 
It, it really boils down to, I, I mean, my GP is, is great. I, I really like him, you know, for the 15 minutes I spend with him a year on average, provided everything's okay. Uh, we have a great conversation, but you can appreciate how, uh, a, a psychedelic therapist who you bear your soul to, uh, in this process, uh, you're going to have a much more deeply intimate relationship with them. And they are going to be medical professionals, or at least within field trip, your therapeutic team is going to be comprised of doctors, nurse practitioners, therapists, who are going to be able to offer a lot more of a holistic perspective. I mean, general, our, our GPs are general practitioners, and they know a little bit about a lot of things. Here, you're going to be surrounded by a team of people who know a lot of a lot about a lot of things. And so, when you think about like, oh, what do I need? You know, why am I feeling so tired? Why why am I achy? Achy? Why am I cranky? Are you going to call your GP who's going to be like, mm, Mark? Um, sounds like you're just tired. Get some more sleep. Or are you going to back go back to the people who'd be like, Hey, Mark, you know you told us you're going through a really difficult time in your relationship or work, or you've got money and anxiety stresses. It's like, get some exercise, do this, do that, do that. It's going to hit you a lot more. It's going to mean a lot more to you. It's going to be a, probably a lot more impactful because they'll be able to access a broader range of resources. You know, which one are you going to choose? Uh, and, and the answer to me becomes pretty evident. So as this continues to roll out and more and more people have a therapeutic team that can speak to a lot of medical issues, um, I, I foresee that becoming the primary point of care for people. Yeah, yeah. No, that's really interesting because I, you know, in many ways, the, the primary care physician model is, I don't want to call it broken, but it's certainly, I mean as you say, five to 15 minutes. And, you know, if we're talking about mental health in particular, I think that our primary care physicians are woefully undertrained in understanding anything other than, you know, it's, it's default. Here's an SSRI. Here's a benzo. Have you tried talk therapy? Have you got outside? Bang, bang, bang. See you later. And yep. it's, it's, it's not, um, it's not patient centered and it's not holistic. Okay. I'm going to give you another one. Okay. And then I'm going to ask you one more question. Then I'm going to let you go. Although, the last question is actually a series of very, very philosophically deep questions. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll just ask one. Um, so Ronan, um, you've been very gracious with your time and I just wanted to close with asking you one, one more um, insight into your prediction. In 10 years, you say, no one will be talking about quote unquote mental health anymore, at least if at Field Trip Health has anything to say about it. I don't know what the term will be replaced with, but whatever it is, it will recognize that the distinction between mind and body is fallacious. Yeah. A a a you got the. You got the yeah, fallacy. You got the you got the word right. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, and, and going back to the previous question you asked about, like why GPs are are probably going to dis be displaced, is that the broader trend in health is towards preventative medicine and integrative medicine. Instead of treating what's wrong, how do you make sure to keep what's right being right, mm -hmm. or even better than baseline? Um, and and so I think broader health trends start to recognize the interplay between. Um, mental and emotional health, physical health, gut health, exercise, food, all of these kind of things. And um, 
the term mental health, even though I know it's used broadly and, and you can interpret it any which way yeah. you want, A, is still based in stigma. I mean, we still have a significant stigma around mental health. We still think about mental health reactively, which is we deal with depression and anxiety instead of really trying to build resilience and, and fortify ourselves. So depression and anxiety don't necessarily take hold. Um, and, and so the dichotomy between physical health health and mental health is going to break down. And so I, I don't know if we call it holistic health, integrative health, um, comprehensive health. I, I don't know yeah. what it is, yeah. but we're going to stop looking at the state of our uh, mental and emotional well-being in isolation and, and start recognizing it as part of the overall uh, well-being of the person. And the use of the word mental, I think, in that context is just going to disappear because of all of the legacy stigma and attitudes towards that specific uh, word. Yeah, no, thank you. That, that, was, that was very well said. Um, so I, I'm going to let you go. I just wanted to share with folks, um, Ronan's on Twitter at Ronan D. Levy. Uh, L-E-V-Y, and he's a, he's a good follow. Um, he also has a uh, podcast called Field Tripping that you can check out on, on Apple Podcasts and I'm sure all the other mediums as well. It has a, that yeah. has a wide array of, of guests across the spectrum in the psychedelic space, and it's, 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 it's worthwhile to check out. And, and I just upgraded my music, Ronan, so you're going to have to listen to this podcast when it goes live because the music is just... It's on point, but you have a nice flow to yours too, where it's very psychedelic-y undertones within your, so you're really on brand with that. But anyways, thank you so much for your time. Thoroughly enjoyed talking to you and uh, best of luck with all your work with Field Trip. We'll be watching closely and uh, take care of yourself. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Uh, thank you for the conversation. I've, I've genuinely enjoyed it. Okay. Cheers. Take care. Peace. You too. Bye-bye.